This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. For the last couple of days, we've been talking a lot about uh, Carla Homolka and how she basically uh, is living the life. Uh, living the life that uh, she snatched from her victims. Uh, of course, we talked to uh, Tim Danson, lawyers for the French and Mahaffey families on this. Uh, he called her and uh, Paul Bernardo psychopaths and said that uh, she got away with murder. It's as simple as that. And uh, she's raising her kids in Montreal and volunteering at their school and uh, hosting field trips or, I guess, parenting on field trips and such. Uh, the school has now announced that uh, if you have a criminal record, no, that can't happen anymore. Uh, don't specifically name Carla Homolka in it, who, by the way, isn't Carla Homolka anymore. But uh, so they said that practice has now been stopped. So I guess she can't do that anymore. Uh, it, it's interesting how uh, and also, uh, as Tim Man- as Tim mentioned, uh, coming up this summer, uh, Bernardo's attempting parole. I don't know how that works, uh, especially since he's a dangerous offender, but I guess we're going to find out uh, when it all goes to court. Uh, Danson says there's no way he's getting out, so don't worry about that. Uh, so there's been lots of chatter about this because it's been 25 years uh, since these crimes. And uh, a lot of people saying, not a lot, but some have said, uh, we got to forgive and forget. we got to move on. She served her time. She did her 12 years. Leave her alone. Uh, and I think the majority of people have a hard time buying into that. Uh, one of the people that says uh, forgive is NDP leader Thomas Mulcair. And Joe Warmington from your Toronto Sun has uh, done a column on that today, and it's entitled uh, NDP leader Tom Mulcair suggests forgiveness for Car- Carla Homolka. Hell no. And Joe Warmington is with us now. Hello, Joe. How are you today? Doing pretty well. Boy, a busy show and a busy time for, for us uh, on so many you know, so many fronts. Why do you think so many people are talking about this again? I mean, obviously it's come up in the news and, and, and such in Montreal, but why does this still strike a nerve? That's a good question. I was wondering that myself. I think for any of us that were around at the time, you know, in the business or just, uh, you know, you had kids of your own, that kind of stuff, uh, the Hamolka and Bernardo story will resonate for your whole life. I think it's interesting for the millennial crowd because, for them, it seems like, you know, one of these historic cases. I'm trying to think of, like, what would be a parallel for us, like Lizzie Borden or something like that. So, yeah. you know, and, of course, you've got the, the fact that you've got the, the, you know, the good-looking female uh, and all that stuff. So it's uh, it really is something. But this story was always about the safety of children, and it was never about anything for me other than that. Uh, we're going to play the clip. It's kind of cloudy, but uh, play a bit of the clip that uh, uh, Thomas Mulcair, of Thomas Mulcair in the press scrum when he talked about this. This is from the Huffington Post. The crimes of Carla Homolka are so horrific that it's so difficult to look at a case like that otherwise than through the horror of the crimes she committed. It, it, on a human level, it's very difficult to go beyond that. There's an open question there for the people who are in that community and in those schools. I understand that she's, um, I understand that she's been volunteering in a, in a Christian school. Now, everybody's going to have to take their own stock of that and make sure that first and foremost that the security of their kids is taken care of. Beyond that, it really becomes a question of forgiveness, and I guess that that's part of this discussion, right? And whether or not someone who's paid their debt. And if you're ensuring the safety of the kids, beyond our revulsion at the horror of the crime, 
is there any way for atonement and forgiveness? And I'm going to leave that to those parents because they have the obligation. What are your thoughts on that, Joe? Well, as, you know, I think the best person to that I went to was the Doug French, who's the father of Christian French, one of the victims. And, mm-hmm. you know, he just said it's easy for, for him to say. I mean, it's, he's not walking in those shoes. He didn't lose a daughter. And and so, you know, he can talk all day long about atonement and forgiveness and somebody having paid their dues when none of that is really relevant. I mean, first of all, she didn't pay her dues. She got away with three counts of murder. And, you know, everybody knows that, including the police and the Crown and everybody else. And then, of course, forgiveness, it's not for Thomas Mulcair to decide who gets to forgive and forget or atone or whatever. And so, you know what, it was a ridiculous statement. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I originally thought maybe he should step away from from being in Parliament after saying that, I, I don't know. Maybe that's too strong. I, I was probably pretty emotional at first. But, but let me ask you this, I, Joe. I think, I think it is ridiculous what he said. Has he taken a stand of some sort, or is he just being honest? That you know, Because clearly there are some that say, uh, and, and, and I'm in the camp you are, I can't get past it because, again, we, are, we remember it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there, there's a camp that, that, that can't forget about it. Then there's a camp that says, you know, she paid her dues, move on. Is that what he's stating, or is he actually taking a position? Well, I don't know. I mean, you'll have to have him on the show to ask him that. Uh, what I'm saying is it's pretty dangerous for him to get up and say that she's paid her dues and it's yeah. time to leave her alone. Look, at the school uh, addressed the policy. The media was right to do what it did. We reported it. Uh, as is, and we, there was children at risk. She is involved with the deaths and the murders and tortures and rapes and dismemberment of three children, three girls, including her own sister. You yeah. know, why don't we say their names? Because, I mean, I think that's pretty important. Yeah. Tammy Hamolka is her sister, Kristen French, and Leslie Mahaffey. Mm-hmm. Those are the three. Then, of course, we won't even get into the Scarborough rapists and the dozens of women. Some are probably listening right now that were victims of her husband. So, uh, that's my focus. Uh, you look at, I know what happened there. I know that she was heavily involved in all of it. She, in some cases, encouraged it and was the genesis of it. Uh, Kristen French was in her care as a kidnapper. She could have any time let her go. She didn't. She made the decision to go for the Thanksgiving or Easter dinner, whatever it was. So that meant that she had to die. She is garbage. She is nothing but a killer. And you know what? I, I don't care what the other camp says. If a camp is no concept of what's real, I never saw the videos. Tim Danson, your guest, uh, yeah. was a terrific person. Uh, he saw the videos, and he told me that he saw evil in her eyes before and after. Wasn't that I fascinating? Some, I heard some of the videos. I heard them in the court, and uh, it's not fun to listen to, let alone see. And he said that uh, as well. Uh, he, he said that he saw the same look uh, in her eyes that he had in the courtroom that he had seen. Uh, and even, uh, you know, when, 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 she, when he was involved in hearings before she got out, uh, he saw the same look in her eyes. And to me, that was, like, frightening. That says quite a bit. Well, just look at the reaction. Look, at her plan has worked. She, her plan yeah, all along yeah. was to, to get out yeah. from under this. She did it. She had to sit in the can for 12 years while she had affairs with other women. And, you know, there were some allegations even with the jail guards. I don't know if that was ever proven. Uh, she manipulated the system very well because she sat the extra four years rather than go through the, uh, you know, the hearings, the parole hearings that her husband is going to try this year. Then she gets out. Uh, she hooks up with her lawyer's brother, 
Yeah. And then they take off to the island, and of course, the, you know, the benefits on Guadalupe aren't quite what they are here in Canada. You don't get six hundred bucks per kid, things like that that you get here. She's she's gaming the system, and she's living the life that those other three young women uh, are not getting to live, and their families aren't getting to see them uh, graduate from high school and go to college or, or university, get married, have children. All of those things are taken away from them. Mm. Are you surprised the school let this happen in the first place? Let her volunteer. Well, you know, you always ask good questions, and I think that that's where this story really should go. The people at the school, what happened here? How did this happen? Did they not realize, or did they say the hell with it? We'll do what we want. We like her. We've decided we've forgiven her. Um, you know what? Uh, you know, we don't really care about the safety of the children. I mean, you can't have somebody that had a drunk driving conviction 20 years ago volunteer or go on a trip and uh, that kind of thing, let alone... Uh, somebody that's involved with killing three children and also sexually uh, assaulting them and dismembering them and videotaping it and drugging them, so all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, the, the school is, is way off base on it. Uh, you know, they've, they've turned around and got it right. I think all the parents that they have sent letters to to say, you know, you be quiet about it. all of them should be apologized to. And the person who made the decision probably should be the retrain. I mean, there's a lot of people retrained for things uh, and, and are all kinds of trouble for things that are less serious, you know, those CBC guys and, you know, all that stuff that the guy over, uh, Jonathan Kay and all that, Steve Lateranti, they're in trouble for saying a joke about cultural appropriation and they lose their careers. And these people are prepared to put a, you know, a killer in around the kids and everybody else is wrong. Hmm. Uh, do you think this woman will ever... I, I, I think most people just I, I can't understand the gall of coming back to Canada, uh, raising three kids. I mean, that's another thing. Think of uh, of her kids. I mean, at the end of the day, they're going to learn what, you know, that mom's a serial killer. And, and you know, at the end of the day, how does how do, how do they live with that? I mean, well, I'm, I'm amazed she had kids. I mean, she has the gall to come back to this country. Look, at I, I don't begrudge her her children and her rehabilitation. Nobody does, but at the end yeah. of the day, imagine what they're going to go through. Yeah, I mean, that's a concern, and she has to think about that when she goes about her day-to-day because she's the one that put the spotlight on herself. She knows what she's doing. I think, you know, you started the question, you know, will she ever, and then you kind of veered off because there's so many things to this thing. I think what you're really saying is, you know, will she ever be able to be left alone? Yeah. And it won't be because Thomas Mulcair says it's what we should do. But I think she could help a long way by maybe doing an interview, maybe with a Peter Mansbridge or somebody, and outlining all these things and actually showing the public that she is remorseful, because I don't think she really is. But if she if she is, contest that a little bit, and then you know maybe set some boundaries uh, and be human about it. But her attitude is everybody else's garbage and scum. Look, after this happened, in the case of uh, Kristen French, she went and had. Uh, supper upstairs when you know they arrested uh, her husband and herself uh, there's a video the opp put out uh showing her running around uh, saying what about this furniture who's going to get it and how are we going to get it back uh you know she doesn't have a sympathetic empathetic bone in her body and that's her problem but it can't be you know our children's problem and that's the job that we have and you have and police have and obviously that school has do you think that, uh, do you think she'll leave after this? Like, wh- where do you go from here? I mean, people know where no, you she, are. No, she, 
she, as long as she stays in her house and does her things and, you know, she can drop her kids off at school and things like that, people will leave her alone. When she crosses over into things like volunteering at a school where there's children, uh, the like of that, then, then you're going to, you know, hear things again. And, uh, and so, you know, that's the way it is. Um, Should we care about what she does? Well, I don't care what she does day to day. I mean, she should stay out of the radar. Yeah. And uh, she's a criminal. Yeah. She's served 12 years. She's responsible for the deaths of three girls. Her husband, Paul Bernardo, is going to have that big parole hearing. That's going to cost 10 to $12 million. And Why is that even happening if he's deemed a dangerous offender? Dangerous offender is not... Originally, when they put it on him, he was one of the first. It was almost brought in because of him. He's not... At that time, anyway, it wasn't part of the criminal code or the sentencing was kind of tacked on. It's kind of like the uh, security certificate. Yeah. So so his conviction is for first-degree murder, and he's entitled to a parole hearing after 25 years, which, you know, is amazing to me because this seems like yesterday. I know it does, doesn't it? For 25 years. I know, it's and, amazing. Uh, and here we are. But, uh, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but you want to talk Cosby a little bit? I'm working on that as well. Yeah, go out. we got about a minute left. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, that, that trial starts next week in Toronto's own Andrea Constant is going to be taking the witness stand, and uh, she's a very strong woman. Um, I was on Entertainment Tonight the last two nights. If you want to uh, you know, look at that, you can go to their website, Entertainment Tonight Canada, and talking about it. And, you know, it's going to be one of these things where you've got this woman from Toronto who was not in the Hollywood circle. She was an athlete who is representing the other 59 women who have the same story or similar stories. They were drugged, and they were sexually assaulted, and it took you know, really an, almost like an act of God to get this alleged scumbag, perhaps one of the worst serial rapists in American history, before the courts, and it's a Toronto woman that did it. Unbelievable. Where do you think this is going to go in the next week? It starts Monday, right? Well, I think it's going to be a fierce trial because, uh, you know, obviously he's going to have a good, uh, you know, good uh, defense and all of that, but she, Andrea Constant, is such a strong individual herself that I think she will be believable, and I think that he has met his match. I think she's going to tell the truth, and I think the truth is ugly. Uh, what the jury decides, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to let them do that and, and let them air the evidence. But if you're asking me to, to take a guess, I think he's going down, and I hope he is. Joe Warmington, columnist with your Toronto Sun. The column today, NDP leader Tom Mulcair suggests forgiveness for Carla Homolka. Hell no. And, of course, uh, keep your eyes peeled in the future for stuff uh, in and around the Bill Cosby trial, which starts on Monday. We'll be talking about a little bit more in the final hour of the Scott Thompson Show. Joe, as usual, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you down the road. It's been a busy week. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Elizabeth Wetlaffer pled guilty yesterday in a Woodstock courtroom to the murder of eight people and attempting to kill or assault six others whom she cared for while working as a nurse. Uh, she claimed that during some of the murders, she felt as though God wanted her to do it. To talk more about all of this, Anthony Quinn is with us, Director Community Affairs, Canadian Association of Retired Persons, and with us now. Hello, Anthony. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Anthony, are there guidelines, rules, regulations, something uh, involved in, in nursing home care that could somehow prevent this from happening? Uh, you know, screening employees, that sort of thing. What, what, sort of, what sort of guidelines are there? Well, I'm not sure that guidelines that exist would have prevented this. There are 
obviously regulations that go along with the nursing profession on its own and the the distribution of drugs the the access of to the drugs among staff those are those are things that are already codified but i think the concern here is that it was able to go on for such a long period of time and undetected so that's a 7 year period of you know of you know homicides going on under the care under the noses of of the of the home care staff so how does this happen anthony like you know well, you were talking about monitoring of drugs this sort of thing it, it seems that none of that was happening here well we look at the records of long-term care homes across Ontario, and we'll see that many of them have issues. And the Auditor General released a report two years ago showing that there were a number of issues. And I think they've started to be addressed, but something like a public inquiry can bring all the stakeholders together, bring in the nurses, bring in the PSWs, bring in the homes themselves, and let's find a way to make sure this never happens again. What kind of issues are you referring to? Well, there, there are many issues about uh, the access to medications about patients being left unattended, about the number of hours that patients actually have in connection with other human beings. Uh, we know that groups like Unifor and the unions who represent the PSWs are saying that they want to have a minimum number of hours with each patient, but that's not happening. So we want to see that patients are living in dignity in long-term care, but they're also protected not only from staff, but from other patients. Is care consistent across the board on these things? I mean, do we need some sort of consistency so more, you know, the, the same sort of guidelines are are in each home? Yeah, no, I, I don't think it is consistent as, as far as I can tell. You know, we have homes that are being uh, consistently reported upon, but, you know, because we have such a need for these places, they're not being penalized. They're not being shut down. So there's and we have a public system and a private system working hand in hand. So when we have government dollars going to for-profit companies, you know, whose uh, who's ends are being served? Is it the patients or is it the private companies? Uh, obviously, the population is getting older. Where is this going? What, uh, what needs to be done? Can an inquiry come up with uh, some sort of platform moving forward? I think a, an inquiry will give a voice to everyone involved. It's right now it's stuck in policy rooms at Queen's Park and in legislatures across the country, and it's everyone is saying that we're doing our best, but obviously the best isn't good enough. The stories we hear from our members, the anecdotal stories continue to come in, and the unfortunate part is that those who are in the long-term care system aren't there for a long time. They're passing away at some point right. during this process of complaint. And when the person passes away, the family, the loved ones who have been advocating, you know, they lose their, their reason to be complaining. So it's a, it's a cycle that's continuing of complaints, of deaths, and the cycle continues. So I think an inquiry could give a voice to all the stakeholders, get to a point where we can say this won't happen again, and then solve that societal issue. We have a whole gen- generation coming through of people who will need long-term care. Fortunately, most of us won't, but if you look at 5 or 10% of the population and that baby boomer demographic coming through, there is going to be a crisis of long-term care. So we have to not only take care of that issue, but make sure that it's safe care, make sure that it's dignified care. Was this a train wreck waiting to happen that has happened with well, the Wetlawfer case? You never would think in, you know, in, in a million years that you would have a serial killer who had taken the role of a nurse and become 
this type of brutal individual. And I don't know that we can have predicted it, but I think that the the holes in the system that this case shows and the flaws in the system should be addressed in an inquiry of some sort. Uh, Could it be that no one questions this or give people the benefit of the doubt simply because it is the elderly? Yeah, and that's another concern that CARP holds, Scott. When we look, if this had happened in a a children's hospital or at a university or a prison, for example, Mm. there would be, I think, a a more vocal outrage that it happened. So CARP is advocating on behalf of all those in long-term care now and those in the future so that they have a voice that they will be listened to and will address this with the gravity it deserves. Do you think this is? Do you think this case will uh, will signify change? Do you think this case will be a catalyst for change? I'm really hoping it will be, Scott. We know that you know this demographic, these baby boomers, they changed the world they lived in as they're going through it. They changed music. They changed the rights of women. They changed the rights of of different ethnic groups. They changed LGBT rights. They changed the education system. I think that this group will be able to change the end-of-life care, long-term care for the future and for the good. Wow, you, you remember them when they were teenagers. Wait out, wait till they're senior citizens. Look out world, eh? Well, they, they've changed <laughs> the world, and I think yeah. they'll continue to do so. Uh, are you surprised this happened? Oh, I have to say I am. No one should think that their fellow fellow man, that someone in a position of care and trust, would, would do such a horrible thing. So I, I, I will claim to be surprised that it happened, but I'm not surprised that the issues of long-term care are coming to the fore because they have been an ongoing issue for some time. Uh, you bring up a valid point. This has been an issue for some time. Uh, there, there was certainly uh, the issue of uh, a resident uh, being assaulted as well. Right. Um, yeah, so we have Mr. James Acker, who I think you're referring to, was mm-hmm. brutally assaulted by a fellow patient. Both had dementia, and perhaps through no fault of the of the, the person who committed the the act. But mm-hmm. Mr. Acker died in hospital a few weeks later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the police are investigating that as a homicide, perhaps not culpable, but the, the long-term care home wasn't able to protect the resident. So I think if we can find some quick solutions, whether it be uh, new rules for drug administration, cameras in the rooms, uh, alarms of some sort, and better staffing and more staffing and perhaps more training. But I think that would be a quick answer to some of these concerns, but we need to have a big look at the entire system. Uh, does this expose a greater problem? Yes. What it exposes is the ongoing problem that I don't think we've looked at all sides of. So the bigger problem is the number of patients, our inability, and perhaps our societal indifference to dealing with it. We're warehousing our senior citizens right now. I think everybody sees that. Hmm. And and I'm hoping that this case, as tragic as it is, can be a catalyst for change. Are we prepared for what's coming, uh, meaning the baby boomer, baby boomer population uh, population moving through? I mean, obviously, there's more uh, seniors now than there is any other uh, demographic in the country. Are we prepared for that in the next 10, 20 years? Well, we, we better be, because we've known it's been coming for the last 30 years. So that the numbers have been in front of us. Politicians and policymakers have been talking about it. But now is the time for action. We can't continue to look at stats and say, it's coming, it's here. And we have to prepare in all cases, uh, in, all, in all services for older Canadians, but particularly in health care and the very vulnerable long-term care patient who can't speak for themselves. Is this a government issue or is this the homes issue? 
I think it's a combination because the homes in many cases are private and they are working with public dollars. So I think it has to be an answer amongst the providers, amongst the government, stronger oversight, stronger protections for the residents, and then some consequences for those who don't follow up. We certainly have seen what's happen, happening with health care and, and, uh, and obviously the strains, the financial strains of that. Will, will we be in the same predicament with seniors in, in the next decade or two? I mean, will it be as expensive as the health care system? I'm not certain that the, the concerns about the health care system are as dire as what we're seeing in long-term care. Really? The money, the money that is going into the health care system right now uh, the, and the growth of seniors is only 1% of the, those increased costs on an annual basis. But what we're going to see, I think, is more money spent on preventative medicine, more money spent on keeping Canadians healthier as they're aging, having more home care, keeping patients out of the hospital as long as they can, having uh, paramedical facilities that don't cost those thousands and thousands of dollars for days in the hospital and avoiding repeat visits to the hospital. So, so I think smart allocation of the current funding model is sustainable for this, this demographic, but it's going to take some political will to make it happen. Where do you think this discussion is going after this case? Uh, and do you think we will see an inquiry? And many times when we see inquiries, they're great, and then nothing is ever done with them. Yeah, and, and that's really up to, I think, the voting public to be putting in uh, candidates and politicians who who will act when they get good advice from commissions and from public inquiries. When we've seen inquiries like in Walkerton, for example, we had five people die. Everyone's familiar with that case, and it was unfortunate, but the inquiry made recommendations that changed the system so that it would prevent future cases. So we have deaths in this case, just like Walkerton. We have systemic issues that we're concerned about, and we're hoping that an inquiry will bring some answers that government can act upon. Uh, How will life change as uh, this segment of the population moves through? Are are you confident at the the level of care that people are getting in nursing homes? Are there a shortage? What's the health care of the nursing home? What's the health of the nursing home system right now? Well, I think it it varies. As you mentioned before, we have homes that, and, and the staff, I think, again, I think they're terrific, but it's the allocation of resources the the situation going forward may be that you never get to the top of that waiting list. You just never get a space. And right now, I believe they're, they're in, the, in the tens of thousands of people on waiting lists right now. And the government's trying to address that through home care and, and other other ways to keep people out of long-term care. But we need to have a plan to have safe, dignified uh, places of care for those aging numbers that will continue to increase. Anthony Quinn has been with us, Director of Community Affairs, Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Anthony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You might remember, uh, how can we forget, a couple of years ago, this all started up again. Bill Cosby and his... Um, these allegations of sexual assault against him. Bill Cosby's trial for the sexual assault of Canadian Andrea Constan will begin June 5th. Constan is, is a massage therapist and former Temple University employee at the time of the alleged assault back in 2004. 
She says uh, Cosby drugged and put his hands down her pants at his suburban Philadelphia mansion. Uh, he has acknowledged under oath a decade ago that he had uh, drugged and sexually uh, con- and had sexual contact with Constan, but he says it was consensual. To talk about all of this, Brendan Neal is with us, criminal lawyer, certified specialist in criminal law at Neal Law, and he is with us now. Hello, Brendan. How are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. How about yourself? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. Uh, as I mentioned, Cosby acknowledged this under oath a decade ago. Um, I thought at that point this case was dealt with. How can it be back in uh, the public uh, sphere again? Well, it's one of the interesting pieces because when he made the acknowledgement, that was part of a civil case um, that actually ended up getting settled. And uh, the terms of that settlement were sealed on the settlement. But uh, as, as you've mentioned, he admitted during testimony of that case to purchasing uh, quaaludes and providing them to women that he had had sex with. Um, it differs a little bit in regards to this case where he says he gave her Benadryl, um, but does admit to giving her pills. Um, and as you say, then claims that uh, any sexual activity was consensual. Uh, so what is it about this case that allowed it to be reopened, simply because it was civil and with the information in here, it could lead to a criminal prosecution? Well, really, as far as it, it being reopened, it's, it hasn't been... The civil case was the civil case. Right. Back in at that time, the uh, state prosecutor decided not to proceed with the criminal case. But since then, there's been a new state, uh, attorney general in that state that's been elected who decided to proceed with it. And should so, there, should there, obviously there should have been this, uh, the, the, the charges initially, should there not if they're doing it now? Um, it, it may, I guess it makes you wonder a little bit why it didn't proceed originally. Yeah. Um, you know, whether there were political reasons or not. Uh, one of the interesting parts is, is, as most people have heard, there were some 60 women that had made allegations. And this is one of the last few that was actually within the statute of limitations still to proceed from those from those right. 60 some odd uh, women that had made allegations so it's one of the very few that's actually going to ever proceed to the criminal courts the fact that he did acknowledge this under oath but said it was consensual how does this change the discussion um, well, it's one piece that the prosecution doesn't really have to prove because he's acknowledged that he's given the pills. Now, he says it's a different pill than what he had earlier said he would give women. Um, but uh, I think the, the dynamic that he's going to have to face and, his, and the defense team is going to have to face is the complainant in the matter indicates and has been quite open about the fact that she's involved in the same-sex lifestyle and so would not have consented at all. Um, which is mm. an interesting dynamic for the case for the defense to try to overcome. Wow. Uh, what's different this time than other times that he's been accused of this? Um, well, I mean, the big difference is he's going to trial, yeah. um, I guess. Um, it, it's just, there's a lot of different aspects with this case that are pretty interesting. For instance, the defense brought a motion to uh, change a venue. So they got the venue changed for the selection of the jury, but now the jury's going back to Montgomery County, which is the same county where the allegations are alleged to have been heard. Um, and the jury's going to be sequestered the whole time. So they're out of their own houses and not to have contact with anybody, which makes it interesting. That doesn't happen, for instance, up in Canada uh, very often at all, um, because we just don't we normally sequester our juries until they're at the decision-making stage. Um, but it's another big celebrity with a very high-profile allegation um, against them, and, and, and you know, if there's a there's a thought that in the past, many of these would get uh, brushed under the rug. 
but this one is, as, as we've seen with some of the other uh, celebrity cases, whether it be the Michael Jackson or the O.J. Simpson case, um, it gets the upfront media attention, and the public learns a lot about the law from it. What can we expect come Monday? Um, I, I think you're going to see the prosecution uh, really, really rely heavily on the complainant's testimony um, and then put in uh, transcripts and the like from the previous testimony so that uh, they can establish and make it that much more difficult for the defense to suggest that this was consensual. But I, I would expect some fireworks right off the bat on day one. Uh, what are the what about the accusations of drugging? Whether you know he's supplying recreational or drugs to be used recreational, I guess you know that would be his claim, and and then sex ensued. But but again, it, it's you know one could certainly interpret this like uh, if these people wanted to have sex with you, there there didn't have to be drugs involved. How does this complicate the issue that he's drugging them as well? It's I think it totally changes the dynamic. For instance, in Canada. The Supreme Court's been very clear that if you're intoxicated, whether by drug or alcohol, um, you very well may not have the ability to consent. And it changes, it changes the whole focus and dynamic and the questions that need to be asked. So if someone may have suggested that they might be willing to engage in sexual activity before uh, they became intoxicated, but we don't know. This is what the Supreme Court has said. We don't know if they would still say the same thing, um, but for the fact that they're intoxicated. So it's it's that interplay of when when is consent gathered, if it was actually ever gathered, versus is someone trying to lower someone's inhibitions by uh, providing them with a substance. So will this largely be a case of he sh- he said she said, and and someone's got to try to figure out who to believe. Um, the the optimistic me would suggest that it, it would be a, a he said she said, and based on the past testimony and comparison, I mean. Uh, to previous statements made, whether people's stories hold up. Um, the uh, more cynical of me um, thinks this might be more of a spectacle trial. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as we've seen in some pre- other files, trials that have been high profile, uh, sometimes the uh, end result doesn't seem to match the evidence. Um, the hope is that uh, the truth comes out on it, but it, it's always difficult for any trier of fact, and we've got you know, 12 jury members that are going to have to figure out who's telling the truth here. Do you see a conviction here? Um, there's, some, there, there's some compelling evidence from what I've seen. I, mean, I don't Obviously, I don't have all the evidence, but there's some things that are fairly compelling uh, in regards to the matter. I think in terms of strategy, the fact that he... That, uh, Mr. Cosby has previously given testimony saying, yes, I would give drugs to women that I had sex with, is a big problem for the defense case. Wow. Uh, um, what about length of time? How long will all of this take? Will this be uh, over quite quickly? Will this drag on? The suggestion is it's good, the trial will take about two weeks. Um, whenever you've got a jury trial, um, they want to move along at a, a, a decent clip, so that the jury, particularly when the jury is sequestered, so they're not taken away from their life for too long. Um, and because in this case, the jury members are going to be essentially locked up in a hotel uh, after the day of court ends until the next morning uh, with no television, internet, etc., likely. Uh, will the civil trial play any sort of role in this at all? Or is, or is that completely, would those dealings be completely separate from this? The fact that he's um, paid off other people, et cetera. Um, I think they might try to use it. I don't know necessarily how relevant it is because 
people settle civil cases for all sorts of reasons mm -hmm. um, without accepting any fault. So there's been no determination of fault in the civil case because it was settled. Um, but the critical piece, I think, is the fact that he actually gave some testimony and gave a de deposition in regards to that and those allegations. And those could be used because they're under oath. Where, uh, what about the length of time since the crime was happened, even though it's within the statute of limitations? Uh, what role does the, the length, the, the time that has passed play in all of this? Well, that's one of the weaknesses for the, for the uh, prosecution's case, um, because this, this all starts way back. I mean, it's about 13 years old. But the complainant didn't go to the police for about a year to start off with. And now we're farther along, much farther, you know, 12, 12 years or so past that. Um, if, if I was running the defense myself, I would be bringing up questions about, you know, how clear can your memory, memory actually be now? Um, you know, you were, we're 12 years past. Um, you didn't go originally. Why didn't you go to the police originally if this was, if this was the case um, and, and try to bring up that type of uh, defense? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they brought up uh, the possibility of, are you just doing this for money? Uh, it'll be a tough time for her on the stand, I'm guessing, will it? Um, I would expect there would be some extremely aggressive cross-examination of her. Yeah. Uh, do you see a weakness in this case? Would it be the length of time? I, I think it is the time. I think that's the really, you know, the questions that are brought on about, uh, and unfortunately it's not unusual for someone that has been a, you know, that a true victim of, of sexual assault or domestic violence or the like to not go to the police right away. That's not really all that unusual. Um, but it is also a common strategy in defending those cases to really highlight the fact that there was this gap in time and try to provide or, or show to the court that there's no real explanation for it. So it must be fabricated because they didn't go to the police right, right away. So it, it can cut both ways. What about the fact that she did have con uh, contact with them afterwards? And, and many have said that, you know, th that th uh, people who are experts in this industry or in um, giving advice uh, after sexual assaults will tell you this is the case in many, with many victims. But, but will that hold any, any weight, the fact that she did still keep in contact with them? Well, I think if we look at the Gameshi trial, we know that that may have a factor, may come into play, because um, certainly that was something that was brought up in the Gameshi trial quite a bit. Do we view these trials differently now? Does the judicial judicial system view these trials differently now? Uh, things that, uh, you know, we're even talking about the, the length of time that's passed since the story or since these allegations uh, or since this all happened. Um, uh, does that change things? I think it's changed over the years, and particularly, I mean, if you look at what's transpired in Canada, even over this last year, with the uh, the new requirements for training of judges, right. uh, particularly in regards to sexual assault matters and uh, and complainants' rights, and getting away from the stereotypes and, and these myths, and they call them the rape myths. Um, so just to ensure that the truth is coming out and people aren't holding these... Uh, sometimes prehistoric uh, concepts in their mind about uh, about what people would do versus what people actually do when things happen to them. When cases of this magnitude like this are in the public eye the way they are, how does this change the discussion on this issue? Um, well, I think it brings it right to the forefront. And it, I, I act, as much as I find some of these cases just to be almost a sideshow, it's a great opportunity for teaching moments for the rest of us, because those that aren't involved in the law get a peek inside the door 
um, in what can be sometimes a very complex world. And they get more of an understanding of what actually transpires in court matters, in uh, um, how uh, complainants, how accused are dealt with. Um, and, and it's a, an opportunity for, for people to learn more about the system. And whether it be the United States or Canada, um, the justice system is, is paramount within both societies. So, As you I, mentioned, uh, certainly uh, within Canada, lots of chatter uh, on this issue over the last couple of years. And, and, I, and I think, you know, times have changed. People view this differently now than they did even just a, a couple of years ago. Can we say the same thing about the United States? Is it much different? Um, I, I would have liked to think so, and then the last election happened. Yeah, really, eh? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, 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 the election was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting time through the last U.S. election, and some of those, uh, as I've already said, prehistoric kind of beliefs and comments uh, seem to come up quite a bit. So we, we, I, I like to think it's changed, but... Will this set a standard? I mean, you think of things like the Gomeshi case here and such, and, and what you were mentioning uh, and how judges now have to have more training uh, in this area. Do you think this will set a precedence? Um, whether it's precedent setting or by the fact, by the case itself, or precedent setting because of the exposure it gets, I think that they'll, it'll have a precedent effect to it, um, just because it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be in our faces, the whole trial. Yeah. Uh, will will people exploit this, or will the message get out? I think groups on both sides will try to exploit it. And I don't know if there's only two sides. There's probably many sides, but uh, um, the victims' rights groups will, will probably uh, take the pieces that are useful for them um, and utilize that. Uh, you know, Defense lawyers will utilize what they can. Prosecution will utilize that what they can. And the politicians will... We'll do exactly the same. So I think it's going to provide some fruit for a lot of different groups. Uh, we're not expecting to see Cosby on the stand? My understanding is he actually uh, did an, a television interview and said he's not expecting to take the stand. Um, that's not all that unusual in my cases. My, my clients rarely take the stand. Um, by taking the stand, he opens himself up to cross-examination. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the most confident public speaker in the world faces a different dynamic if they open up to cross-examination. And he's not intend, uh, not uh, required to attend court in person? Um, it, I'm not sure about that dynamic. Some of the states have some uh, strange situations like that. Certainly in Canada, he would have to attend in court in person. Uh, and uh, do you don't see, or you do you see a conviction here? I mean, if I if I were taking a guess based on the information I have that's incomplete, um, I think the prosecution has a decent shot. Brendan Neal has been with us. He is a criminal lawyer, certified specialist in criminal law, a law at Neal Law. Um, are you surprised it got to this point, Neal? Or sorry, Brendan? Um, a little bit, um, because it has been such a long time. Um, there's been a lot of uh, questions about is, is it politically motivated that it goes ahead now. Um, and that falls into a little bit uh, with the change in the uh, the prosecution because they're elected down there, um, right? And that change, there's there's been some calls of this is is this really just a political decision at this stage? Um, whereas I think it's probably more that uh, people are taking it a little bit more seriously in sexual assault matters as they should. Uh, what could uh, Bill Cosby do to uh, protect himself in all of this? What's his best shot? It's an interesting question because there's been a lot of people that said 
really, this is a case where he should testify. Um, I mean, he was America's dad for years, through the the Cosby Show years. Um, And a lot of uh, people talking about the case have suggested, you know what, he really needs to take the stand and explain the situation, because he's already admitted to uh, extramarital sexual relations, which can be a big negative for him. He's admitted providing drugs to uh, the women he had sex with, which could be a big negative to him, for him. Um, and some people are saying, you know what, he needs to take the stand to explain it, because as human beings, we want to hear the person say, I didn't do anything that wasn't consented to. Brendan so Neal has been with us. Criminal lawyer Brendan Neal has been with us. Brendan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.